Uh, moving on. If you got your Bibles, you ready? Open to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24, and then we're going to go into Acts 14 and Acts 16. All right? Joshua 24, then Acts 14 and Acts 16. Okay? Uh, so here's the deal. Last week's sermon, we kind of took a detour. And uh, again, very emotional. There were a lot of people that came up and said, hey, that sermon was for me, Pastor. And so I really appreciate you giving me that encouragement. This one's a little bit different. There's a reason the Lord derailed us, but this one I think the July Sunday, and maybe this is one that ends up memorable as well. It's a passage that a lot of pastors skip uh, because of one verse that's a super weird verse. And so uh, us, we're not afraid of those verses. Uh, it says in Scripture that all Scriptures God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness. And so we're going to tackle it today, uh, and it's going to have to do with the concept of someone being a disciple. Okay? So our study today starts with this question. Have you ever avoided making a commitment to something before? You ever avoided making a commitment to something before? before. Uh, some of you are like, yes, that was like my whole dating up until we got married, right? Uh, they, sometimes you can have this term of fisher cut bait, right? There's a moment when you got to make a choice uh, where you either go or you don't, where you either do or you do not. In the words of Yoda, do or do not, there is no try, right? There's a commitment that has to take place there. Uh, and if we don't, it ends up weird. And so um, I'll never forget uh, when I was first working in student ministry, we had a young man in our youth group that was a really great athletes. I played lacrosse in college and scored one goal uh, my entire uh, collegiate lacrosse career. Um, I was not heavily recruited, all right, just so you know. Uh, but uh, some of you in this room have been. You understand that recruiting process. And we had a kid who was just an absolute rock star in football and was going to go great places. I mean, top 10 nationally. It was really, really special. Now, I'll never forget, I'm young, so I didn't feel like I could speak into his journey. But he starts showing up, and he's got like boxes of letters of people asking him to come to their school. And I remember we're looking at these letters and it's all over the place. Division one schools, college football powerhouses are looking at trying to get him to come into play for him. And I'm telling you, my wife and I are looking at it and we were like, this is amazing, dude. You have like your golden ticket and it's that you can catch a ball. You know what I mean? This is great. Whatever it is you choose to do is going to be awesome. And I remember him going through that list and then he started doing his visits. Some of you D1 athletes will know. I see you, Kyle. I'm looking at you. All right. Now here's the deal. You got the D1, she's the D1 athlete too. There you go. I'm telling you, you get these visits, you get to go to campus, you get to be wooed by the team, spend time with these big wigs, and it feels really good. But listen, at the end of the day, there's a big day coming up that's incredibly important that every athlete that's being wooed has to look forward to. And what day is that? Signing day. Signing day is when you make a decision along with a whole bunch of other people, and after signing day, everything is different. So this young man, back in the day, enjoyed playing the field so much that he thought to himself, I think that I'll just continue playing the field after signing day. But here's the problem. All of a sudden, there was this big pool of people that wanted, and that pool all of a sudden shrunk into, I mean, it was just like a bathtub after that, okay? I mean, it was such a much smaller collection of groups. And in the end, I don't believe he ended up getting to go to the school that he wanted because in the end, he was still consumed with playing the field. There is a time when you truly have a moment where you have to make a decision. You have to make a commitment. You can't keep playing the field because it's just, it's time that something has to be decided. And in Joshua chapter 24, 
That's the point that Joshua comes to with the Israelites. He looks at him and says, here's the deal. We have been through a lot of stuff together. We've been through slavery in Egypt. We've been through the plagues. We've crossed the Red Sea. We've wandered in the wilderness. God has given us water from a rock. He's given us manna from heaven. And we've watched the walls of Jericho tumble down by us marching, chanting, and playing trumpets. I mean, I'm telling you, he sits there and goes, we have seen the awesome power of God, and you are no longer allowed to play the field. That's what he says here, basically. This is old man Joshua in Joshua 24, verse 14. Here's what he says in front of the whole country. He says, now, fear the Lord and serve him, look at this, with all faithfulness. He's basically saying there, sign your letter of intent, give the Lord your life. This is not just something you're feeling out and you're testing. God has shown us faith, God has shown us his faithfulness all throughout this process. It's time that we pledge our allegiance to him. He says, throw away the gods of your forefathers that they worship beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What we have here in Joshua is Joshua stands up before the nation, says we've been through all these things together. He's read the Torah to the people. He's told them their story and their history. And then he stands up and says, after everything we've been through, he says, Egypt, the Lord took them down to lead us out of bond into freedom. He says, and if we worship those gods, how ridiculous is that? Then the land of the Amorites, that's again the land of Jericho, the land that they're in at this time. He says, you are literally standing on soil where God has conquered these people so that we could be in this land. And he looks and he says, here's the deal. If the serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, he says, then choose the gods of the Egyptians that Yahweh defeated. Choose the gods of the Amorites uh, that God defeated. But I'm telling you, as for me and my my house, we will serve the Lord. Where do I sign my letter of intent? Because this is who I want to place my faith in. You see, we come to a point where we get salvation through our belief in Jesus Christ and forgiveness through him. But for every believer, there's another transition that takes place. When you look at God and you go, you know what? If I trusted you for my eternity, then why wouldn't I trust you for every aspect of my life? Why wouldn't I become your disciple. The word disciple means a disciplined follower of a master. It means that you not only trust God for your salvation and eternity, but you trust that God made you for such a time as this, for this moment, and that he is the one who has a plan for your life. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? It is God's desire that we place our faith firmly in him and that we submit to his leadership in our lives. Let me say that again. It is God's desire that we place our faith firmly in him and that we submit to his leadership in our lives. There are some of you who have been believers in Jesus Christ a long time, but you just feel this tug, this twinge in your spirit that there might be something more to what God is calling you to do. We call that that calling to disciple. This idea that you would give God not just a part of your life, not just a wing of your house, but that you would wholly and completely belong to him. We call that being a disciple. So here's our big million dollar question today. What are the identifying characteristics of a disciple? 
What are the identifying characteristics of a disciple? When we look at the way Timothy joins Paul and Silas in their crusade to go strengthen the early churches that they've planted all across the world. When we look at Timothy, Timothy is the description of a disciple. Let's look real quick at Acts chapter 14, and then we're going to jump into Acts 16 and look into the identifying characteristics of a disciple. So this series that we're doing uh, is basically walking through Paul's second missionary journey, uh, but we're going to be doing this a lot. We'll need to go back for context to the first time Paul went to that village, the first time that he went uh, to spend time with that group of people. And uh, in this case, Acts 14 is the setup for what God does in Acts chapter 16. This story that we're about to read is when Timothy's family uh, is saved. Look with me, if you will, at Acts, 16, or Acts 14, verses 8 through 20. It's a crazy little story. This is how the church is founded in Lystra. It says, so in Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, and who was lame since birth. He'd never walked. It says he listened to Paul uh, as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had the faith to be healed. And he called out to him, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up, and he began to walk. Now, when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The, chief, uh, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths into the city gate because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Stop right there for just a minute. This is how a church gets planted, people. Paul and Barnabas walk into town, and when they get there, they know that the Lord's led them to that city, and all of a sudden they see a man on the side of the road that looks like he has the faith to be healed. Now, I don't know what that look is. It just means they see him, and there's something special about this, a spirit-led moment that takes place. In fact, he is so known in the town that one healing stirs up the entire city. It turns them all into an uproar. Paul walks up, says, would you like to be healed? The man says, absolutely I would. The faith is there. Paul stands him up on his feet and it causes uproar in the town so much so that they try to fuse the former culture with the miracle that's taken place. The idea there is there is no denying that something spiritual has taken place in this moment with this man. They try to force Greek mythology on the situation. And they go, whoa, the dude doing all the talking must be Hermes. That's Paul. And the dude who's tall, silent, with his arms crossed on the side, that big dude must be Zeus. That Barnabas must be Zeus in that circumstance. They bring out all the wreaths. They try to offer the sacrifices. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd, shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, humans like you. How funny is that? Have you ever had to defend that you're a human to someone before? All right. When the power of God moves, they know that something special has taken place. And the response is, hey, we're human, just like you. Look at this. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, the Lord let nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. It says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. A movement of Almighty God takes place, a miracle. 
And from that moment, the church in Lystra is born. And listen, if you've ever read First and Second Timothy, if you've ever read again Paul's letters uh, to, to Timothy, this is how Timothy's family comes to Christ. It's an amazing miracle that only God could have done where the people were so awestruck, they didn't know what to do with it. Their lives were completely different afterwards. Now look at the end of the story too. I wish I could tell you it ends good for Paul and Barnabas here. Look at what it says next, verse 19. It says, then some Jews from Antioch and I Iconium won the crowd over. Look at this. And they stoned Paul. I know they stoned Paul. And they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now stop right there for just a minute. This magical thing, this amazing godly spiritual moment happens where the man is healed. The culture doesn't know what to do with it. They just know that they're different afterwards. Some end up getting saved and some end up as seekers trying to wrap their heads around what's happened. But all of a sudden, a group comes up that I've experienced from Paul and Barnabas from previous chapters in Acts. They show up and they go, they were rabble rousers with us in Antioch, and now they're rabble rousers here in Lystra. You don't need to trust these guys because they're going to shake up the culture and everything that's taken place up until this point. All of a sudden, it says they get so angry that the same Paul that they tried to offer sacrifices to, like he was a god, they haul him outside of town and they try to stone him to death. Now remember, anytime you read stoning in Scripture, Stoning is a form of execution that was reserved specifically for blasphemers, for those who stood against the spiritual culture. It was a very primal way to kill somebody. It's not just throwing rocks in the schoolyard. Stoning is where they would take boulders and they would crack them over your knee until they broke your leg. They would put you in incredible amounts of pain before you ever were killed. It was a a very, very vicious form of execution. Then finally, when they were done with you after you'd suffered enough and they wanted to go home, they'd take the big boulder and they'd bash you over your skull so that they could just call you done. That's what they've done to Paul. They've killed him. They beat him up so badly. At the very least, they beat him up until he's completely unconscious and not breathing heavily anymore. And they leave, and then all of a sudden, either God miraculously raises him from the dead at this point, or they didn't quite finish the job. And Paul's able to go back into the city, let them know, I'm not afraid of you. God's doing powerful things here. And then they do get out of there to go to Derby after that. Now, don't miss this. That's the way Timothy's family comes to Christ. That's the way his mother, his grandmother, and he himself, most scholars believe that Timothy would have been a teenager when this takes place of Acts chapter 14. That first trip to Elystra, that first moment, spawns the growth of this church. And then Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, start off the story 12 years later, 12 years after Acts chapter 14, when Paul goes back and he remembered Timothy. He remembered that this young man had a special spiritual heritage in front of him that he was going to be used to do some amazing things. Now flip over to Acts 16 and let's start in verses 1 and 2. So what are the identifying characteristics of a disciple? Look with me at Acts 16 verse 1. It says, When uh, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Underline where a disciple named Timothy lived. That word disciple is specifically used to describe Timothy. He's not just a believer. He's not just a follower. He is a disciplined follower of a master. A disciple named Timothy lived there. Look at this. Whose mother was a Jewess and whose father was a Greek. 
It says the brothers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Underline and highlight that they spoke well of Timothy. What are the identifying characteristics of a disciple? We find it right here in verse 2. Timothy is called the disciple in verse 1, and the description that we get is that people speak well of Timothy. His life reflects his faith. If you're taking notes, write that down. Number one, your life reflects your faith if you are one who is truly a disciple. Now, we've been around here sometimes. We get to see people who come in uh, to this part of the city, and because the Nats Park is right over here, there are some people that come in as fans. Some people come in, and there is no doubt, right, who it is that they're cheering for. You ever seen somebody walk in, and I'm telling you, somebody comes in, and maybe you've got, like, a, because we're D.C., you got the classy hat, you know, that has, like, the little curly W on it, you know what I mean, where they're still dressed like they came from work, but they got the little hat on that's the a defining characteristic. Or sometimes you'll see this. There'll be, like, a little tag on the shirt somewhere, just subtle to let you know what team they cheer for. And then there's the other person. That's the one that paints the chest blue, right? That comes in with red pants or with red shorts or whatever. And I'm telling you, they've got the curly W shaved into their back hair on the back. You know what I mean? I'm telling you, they are just there and ready to rumble because you know uh, that they are Nationals fans. You can just see it all over them. You ever watch this before? Someone pulls up in a car and the car's got the flags hanging off on the side with the Nationals flag. And then you've got the magnet stuck to the side of the vehicle. And then they've got Go Nats as their license plate. You know what I mean? Do you ever just sit there and look at that car and go, I wonder if they're Braves fans? You know what I mean? <laughs> no. Because every ounce of that vehicle, every ounce of the body paint, every ounce of the curly W shaved into their back, listen to me, <coughs> it screams that they are Nationals fans. For a disciple, that's what it should be with Jesus. That when people look at you, it's not that you need to have, again, your paint chested, or chest painted for Jesus you know, every single day. But people should be able to look at you in one way or another and know you're a Christian. They should be able to see it in the way that you live your life, in the way that you do your business. They should be able to see it in the way that you interact in relationships, in the way you treat your spouse, the way you raise your kids, in the way that you handle conflict. Your life should be a reflection of Jesus. If you're the type of person that people look at and they go, I wonder who it is that they root for. I wonder what it is that they live for. Then I think we've missed the mark on that. There are no secret agent Christians. Can I just tell you that? There are no secret agent Christians. If you don't believe me, go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 26. You don't have to flip there. But there's a point where Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words... He said, I'll be ashamed of them when I stand before the Father and the angels in heaven. It's from the mouth of the Son of God himself. It's real hip to preach the Jesus verses right now that are soft and loving. Same Jesus that says those soft, loving things also says, you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. How does that sound? Now listen, you sign your letter of intent with Jesus. We give him our lives for salvation and forgiveness. But then we come to a point where we decide, you are my Lord and I will live for you. You made me. And I believe you made me with a purpose. When we don't do that, it's weird. By the way, if you want to take this, write this down, you can. A disciple's faith is not a hidden addition. <clears throat> it is the defining characteristic in their life. Let me say it again. A disciple's faith is not a hidden addition. It is the defining characteristic in their life. When it's not, it's weird. There's a great example of that in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Don't flip there. But in the story of Saul... 
This is King Saul in the Old Testament and David. Saul and David had this really difficult struggle that they went through because God had told David that he would be king one day and Saul was the one who was the current king. And so because of that, there's all this great tension. Plus, Saul didn't live for God. He really lived for himself. And David's the one scripture calls the man after God's own heart. And so because of that, there's all this tension. Well, one day, David's playing his harp, trying to soothe Saul, playing the old school guitar, right? And he's playing his harp. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Saul gets so angry with them at the beginning of 1 Samuel 19. It says Saul picks up a spear and tries to pin David and his harp to the wall. Well, David dodges the spear and then realizes this is probably not a solid working environment for me. I need to get out of here. So what does he do? Later that night, it says he hides idols in his bed, sneaks out the window, and he runs to a town called Ramah where a prophet named Samuel is. Well, while he's in Ramah, all of a sudden something really cool happens. Revival, spiritual revival and awakening takes place in Ramah. While at the same time, Saul goes, I've heard David's in Ramah and I'm going to go take that joker down. So what's he do? He sends a group of, of uh, he sends a uh, captain and he sends the ca- he sends the guard. <coughs> Excuse me. While he's there, you ever get like a grain of coffee in your throat? <coughs> Excuse me. So David goes. While David's there, Saul sends the army to try to go track him down. And while he goes to track him down, when the guard shows up, the spirit falls on them. <coughs> Excuse me. The Spirit falls on them, and it says they begin prophesying. Well, when all of a sudden they start prophesying, it means preaching, all of a sudden they stop chasing after David. After the moment of prophecy takes place, the King Saul sends another group to try to go get them, but then they stop and they prophesy as well. While they're there, King Saul finally goes, I'm going to have to go take them down myself, figure out how this thing works. So King Saul goes, And while he's there, this wicked king, the Spirit of God falls even on him. And while he's there, it says he strips off his robes and he begins to prophesy. Now, here's what's interesting about that. I apologize, guys. Sam, can you grab me a little bit of water? Is that okay? So in the process, it says at the end, because of the wickedness of Saul... It says at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 19, it says, it made the people say, is not Saul also among the prophets? The picture is he had lived so wickedly, his life was not a reflection of him being in service to Yahweh. It was a reflection of deep selfishness. And it caused people, even though the spirit had moved, it caused people to look at him and go, is he also a prophet? Did God really just use him? Even though the miracle is undeniable, his life doesn't reflect it. I'm afraid, my friends, that that can be a lot of us in this city. That we can come to a point where people look at us and even though the Spirit is moving powerfully, thanks dude, even though the Spirit is moving powerfully, listen to me, when they look at your life, is it a reflection that Jesus is the one who's in charge? Or when they look at your life, do they just go, man, is such and such also among the prophets? I can't deny the power of the miracle that's taking place around them, but their life, it just doesn't quite match up. For a disciple, you make the decision that you are not your own. Save your spot uh, there in Acts 16 and now flip over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. One of the most famous verses in all of Scripture 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says this. It says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 is the reminder that we are not just executed with Jesus. We are painfully executed with Jesus. We die to self. We no longer live. We no longer belong to ourselves. But we live for Christ and we strive to be a reflection of him. And why do we do that? Paul writes here, because this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. We give ourselves to Jesus and he has given himself for us. If you're taking notes, write this down. Is your life a clear reflection of Jesus or is it a murky one? Is your life a clear reflection of Jesus or is it a murky one? You ever been to murky water before? I'm from West Texas where there are no real lakes. Okay, they're all fake lakes, okay, man-made lakes. And I'm telling you, when you go to one of those man-made lakes, um, you can see about three inches down, and that's about it. You know what I mean? That murky, nasty water. I mean, it's just scary to know what's in there. You've been to like a place where it was crystal clear water before? Man, you look and you can see everything. When it comes to your walk with God, are you a murky man-made lake or are you crystal clear Caribbean water? When they look at you, can they see clearly that Jesus is the reason you are the way you are? Now, if you're taking notes, it begs the question again. Is your life a clear reflection of Jesus or is it a murky one? Now flip back over to Acts 16, and we're going to look at verse 3. This is the reason a lot of pastors skip this passage is because of this crazy little verse. We're going to use a fancy word called circumcision. Are you ready for this? Here's what it says. Verse 3. It says, Paul wanted to take Timothy along on the journey... So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area. Look at this. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Stop right there for just a minute. Paul would spend a huge portion of his career denouncing circumcision of Gentiles that would become believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, when Titus is circumstance, Titus is a Gentile, and Titus does not have to be circumcised in order to be able to go and spend time in the Jewish temple. But Timothy, Timothy was a weird circumstance. Do you remember what we studied about earlier? His father is Greek, and his mother is a Jewess. And here's what we find out, a Jewess who becomes a believer. Here's what we find out. Because Timothy is not circumcised, that means the family had chosen to raise him in the Greek culture and not in the Hebrew culture, but he represents someone who had already shunned the Jewish community that he was going to try to reach. So one of the things that the scholars write about this passage is that Paul, even though he had made a huge deal that circumcision did not have to be part of your salvation experience, he would spend his whole career defending that, that in this specific circumstance for Timothy, the right and righteous thing to do was for him to go through this process, for him to do this so that, all, so that he would give up all things to all men that he might save some. If you're taking notes, write this down. I hope you don't miss this today. What are the identifying characteristics of a disciple? Number one, your life reflects your faith. And number two, you wrestle with scripture and you apply it. 
You wrestle with scripture and you apply it. This was not the situation for everyone, but for Timothy specifically in this moment at this time, this was the best thing. This was the best and godly option that he needed to follow through. There's a beautiful passage, uh, or there's a beautiful painting by Rembrandt called Philosopher Reading. I've got a copy of it in my house uh, at, uh, at our house. Uh, it's just beautiful. And the picture, some scholars actually believe it's the, the Apostle Paul uh, that Rembrandt is trying to paint. You should look it up on Google. It's very beautiful. In the picture, the philosopher, instead of holding a book and reading it like this, it's a philosopher with a long beard, and a philosopher's looking intently and holding the book that he's reading just like this. One hand on the back, but the other is holding tight to the front. You can see the light comes down, symbolic of the knowledge that the philosopher's taking in. Rembrandt paints it so beautifully, but the picture is this. As the philosopher reads intently into this book of the truth, at one point he wants to know deeply what it says, but at one point he also wants to tear the book in two because it causes him to have to live differently. If this truly, what he's reading, is the truth, then it causes him to have to live his life in a completely different way. That's the way a disciple reads and studies Scripture. When we read scripture, it's not to find a loophole so that we can continue doing the sin that we like doing. We read scripture as the grid or the filter for how we live our lives, not to find loopholes, but to know how we should live, how we should move forward, what the godly thing to do in that circumstance is. If you're taking notes, write this down. And some of you may want to write this in the flap of your Bible uh, there by, uh, by that Acts 16, just as a description here. Paul spent a good portion of his career denouncing Gentile circumcision, but in Timothy's specific case, he deemed it righteous to do so. Let me say that again. Paul spent a good portion of his career denouncing Gentile circumcision, but in Timothy's case, he deemed it righteous to do so. A um, little funny side note. So I usually type in my sermon notes on my iPhone and send them over, uh, but there's this thing called autocorrect, all right, that uh, can cause you all kinds of trouble, so you got to make sure you read it through. Well, so the autocorrect on this one said uh, Paul spent a good portion of his career denouncing gentle circumcision. And so just so you know, uh, that's a definitely, I do not denounce that in any way, shape, or form. Right? It should, should always be gentle. Anyway, just thought that was hysterical. Okay, do not denounce that. All that's to say to you, okay, in this circumstance, Paul, Paul wrestles with it, Timothy wrestles with it, and then what he has to do in this circumstance so the people in his hometown can hear the gospel clearly he chooses to make this jump. It's not for everybody, but it was the situation for him. I was preaching on this, not this particular passage, but on this subject of wrestling with Scripture and applying it. And um, I remember it was a group of men. It was in a men's Bible study. And one of the guys who's a dear friend that I love so much, um, he owned an ATM company. And uh, he uh, told us, we asked around the group, we said, is there anybody here uh, that has an example of this where you wrestled with Scripture uh, and had to make a decision that wasn't specifically outlined in Scripture, but it was true for your situation? And this guy said, yeah, absolutely mine. He said, I work in the ATM business. And he said, any place that people need cash quickly, he said, that's where you want an ATM to be. He said, at 7-Eleven. He goes, that's a big one. He goes, at the airport, that's a big one. Uh, he said, these open spaces, uh, casinos even, uh, that that's a big one. He said, you want to be in place where people need cash quickly and you can upcharge uh, the fees in order for people to get that cash because they have to pay to put the machine there and they have to pay to, uh, to service the machine and all this stuff. He said, but the golden goose in ATM business is strip clubs. He said, you can charge whatever you want at a strip club because 
people will just spend all sorts of fees to try to get to try to get cash immediately in that moment. They typically don't bring it with them, and they just want to get it immediately. He said, I got a call. And he said, I finally got offered to break into the strip club market. He said, the fees you can charge there, he said, my family would be millionaires immediately. I mean, we're all kind of sitting there taking it in. We're like, what are you going to do? He goes, there's no question. He said, I live my life according to scripture. He said, it'd cost me my soul if I did this. He said, I'm going to let it go. Now, here's what's interesting. Word got around that he let it go, and he ended up a millionaire anyway. All of a sudden, that integrity made him someone who was deeply trustworthy, and it upped the value of his business because he was willing to walk away from easy money. Now, I tell you that to say this. There is no ATM passage in Scripture. But the principle, whenever you go through Scripture and you're not looking for a loophole, but you truly say, Lord, this is how I will live my life. Show me how I should live. We strain our lives through the truth of Scripture. Then all of a sudden, the truth that God provides, it changes us and it ends up defining us. When you're buying a house, when you're taking a job, when you're going to school, when you're dating somebody, or you're considering yoking yourself to someone through marriage, wrestle with Scripture, and then apply it to your specific situation. Not looking for loopholes, but truly trying to find out what God's will for your life is. Some of you have heard the long version of the story. I won't bore you with it again. But when the Lord called us to plant Waterfront Church, they gave my dad 30 days to live. And I remember the church that we had worked at previously said, come back, help us. You haven't started your church there in D.C. yet. I'd worked there for five years and loved that experience. And I remember them telling me, come back, serve here. We'll send someone else to plant the church in D.C. You've got to make sure that stuff's taken care of here for your family. And they said, you don't want to miss the last days with your dad. I remember at the time I was reading Luke chapter 9 when Jesus asked the man to follow him. And Jesus says, follow me. And the man says, I will, but Lord, first let me go bury my father. It was my circumstance. I was reading in scripture. Jesus then replies to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom. I used to read that verse so harsh. Jesus isn't being harsh. In fact, most scholars believe that it's the calming of the storm that's going to take place just a few hours after Jesus makes that statement in Luke 9. What Jesus is saying to that dude is, I'm telling you, you can get back to dad, but the storm has been started since the beginning of time. It's going to happen right here in this moment, and you're not going to want to miss the awesome power of God on display. You got to come if you want to be a part and experience something amazing. When we strain our lives through Scripture... We then know what we're supposed to do. Did you know my dad didn't live 30 days? He lived nine months. Not only that, dad got to preach his last sermon. He preached all over the world, and he got to preach his last sermon across the street at the Courtyard Marriott Navy Yard at our church. You wrestle with Scripture, you submit to God's leadership, and you apply it in your life. It begs the question, how often do you analyze your life through the filter of Scripture? How often do you analyze your life through the filter of scripture or are you the legal analyst that just goes to it to find your loopholes if you do that you will constantly be chasing the will of god and not living in it can i say that to you again you'll constantly be chasing the will of god you will not be living in it now let's look at our last verses and we'll call it a day Acts 16 verses 4 and 5 
It says, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in their faith. Underline, they were strengthened in their faith, and they grew daily in numbers. Because of the work of Timothy, not only did he grow in his faith, not only did he grow in his understanding of Scripture and his application of it, but we find that then his eyes are turned to live missionally and to take care of the world around him as well. If you're taking notes, write this down. What are the identifying characteristics of a disciple? Number one, your life reflects your faith. Number two, you wrestle with Scripture and you apply it. And number three, you live missionally. You live missionally. The example, by the way, of the word missionally is this. You look beyond yourself to the work of God and others. You look beyond yourself to the work of God and others. There are some of you in this room, you are striving for your life to reflect your faith. You are striving to filter your life through the truth of Scripture, but you feel this tug in your heart that there is something more. That something more is you looking beyond yourself and your spiritual journey to the way that God could use you in strengthening others in their spiritual journey, that God could use you as one to plant the seeds of the gospel. That's this idea of of living missionally. If you're taking notes, write this down. As a disciple comes to understand the true value of God's forgiveness and mercy, they naturally become obsessed with sharing it with others. Let me say that again. As a disciple comes to understand the true value of God's forgiveness and mercy, they naturally become obsessed with sharing it with others. Evangelism is an overflow of true discipleship. You come to a point where you live for God, you allow him to change you, you strain your life through the truths of scripture, and then from that is this overflow of realizing, man, there's a whole lost world out there that could be experiencing forgiveness, that could be experiencing joy, that could be experiencing love and eternal life the same way that I am. And then it erupts into something else, and we'll close with this. It then turns into another understanding Not just that that joy and that love is available through Jesus, but that without him, the world is lost and dying and there is no hope. To understand the truth of heaven, you also have to understand the truth of hell. Hell is separation from God and eternal torment where there is no hope, where there is no relief. And that's what awaits someone if they don't have Jesus For a true disciple, if you knew that something bad was going to happen in this room, if you knew that something awful was going to take place, the disciple's attitude is not just to go, I better tell them out front that they shouldn't go in. There's a point as the disciple where you realize, I will lay down in front of the doors to keep people from going in because I so desperately don't want them to be in pain. I so desperately don't want them to be destroyed. There has to be a desperation that's stirred in your heart where you go, I am so concerned for my fellow neighbor, I will put myself at a loss so that they do not have to go through a world without Jesus. You can't make anybody get saved, but you can certainly make them step over you to go in the opposite direction. Find a way to truly be a disciple that lives missionally. Point to Jesus in all things with your life and then point to him living missionally so that others can be considered better than yourself. It begs this final question today. Can you see past yourself to a broken world in need of Jesus? Can you see past yourself to a broken world in need of Jesus? In Timothy's circumstance, he does it 
He's known as a good man, who's known as a disciple. They speak well of him. He's willing to sacrifice. Uh, he's willing to sacrifice just about anything we find in verse 3 because of the cause of the gospel. And then he goes to the ends of the earth, taking them the message. He sees the broken world and how Jesus can fix it. Thanks for listening today. Sorry about the coffin spell. Yeah, this is the video hour, too, so that'll be recorded. All right? It'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> Enjoy watching that later. Anyway. Hey, don't, don't tune out. Sometimes when weird stuff like that happens, the Lord's trying to get your attention, throw things off so that you'll focus on what it is that he's trying to say to you. All right? Let's bow our heads for prayer.